You're listening to. Whoa! Welcome back to another episode of Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. I'm Marvin Yu. And I'm Rira Yu. Today we have a great interview that Rira did with Winnie M. Lee, um, the author of Dark Chapter, a crime fiction novel that is based on her real life experience of a violent rape and her path to recovery. Um, so this is also your content warning for sexual assault and um, rape conversations. Dark Chapter came out in 2017 and it won the Not the Booker Prize Award and was nominated for a 2018 Edgar Award for Best First Novel. Uh, Winnie is also a co-founder of the Clear Lines Festival, which is dedicated to promoting discussion of sexual violence and consent through the arts. She is a Harvard graduate and PhD researcher at the London School of Economics, where she studies the use of social media by rape survivors to share their experiences. Rita, what did you think about the year conversation? Um, it was very enlightening. Because uh, when I was reading this book, uh, I had a lot of questions and I knew that uh, obviously like the book mirrors her own experience. I wanted to see how much of it was uh, was true, I guess. And um, just, you know, it, it's a very brave memoir. It's really hard. Well, not memoir. It's a very uh, it's a very brave thing to do to t- openly talk and write about such a traumatic experience and it was also like my first time to see a book that portrayed an asian american rape victim and like the aftermath of uh, of her rape so it was very like i don't know it was it was like a new experience for me and i really appreciated the talk that i had with winnie so without further ado here is rira's interview with winnie m lee um a quick note, uh, Winnie was calling in from London uh, over Skype, and there may be a little um, Skype shenanigans with the audio, but bear with us. It's great content, and I um, hope you enjoy Reaver's interview. Uh, thank you so much for joining us again, Winnie. Uh, before we jump right in, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background as a writer and storyteller? I know that you worked in film previously. Yeah, um, my parents were um, immigrants from Taiwan. And I mean, I loved reading and I loved writing stories when I was a kid. Um, I wasn't really encouraged necessarily um, by my parents to pursue that as a career. Um, so I you know, whatever. I, hadn't, I wasn't really thinking that far ahead when I was a kid. And then when I got to college, uh, I studied folklore and mythology, which is um, you know, kind of bizarre, but also it was storytelling still. And I was always really interested in kind of these old legends and myths that, old cult- that other cultures used to tell. Um, and uh, then I basically studied Irish folklore and mythology, well, Irish literature um, in Ireland, because I got a fellowship to study there um, as a graduate student. And eventually I moved to London and I wanted to um, work in the film industry. Um, in Ireland, I'd started uh, basically interning for a film festival. And then I met actual like real life filmmakers and kept in touch with some of them and kind of networked my way to a job um, interning for a film producer in London. And eventually I ended up working with her for a number of years, for about six years. Um, I became her development executive and her head of development, and I was producing alongside her. Um, so we worked on six feature films and um, two short films, um, one of which got nominated for an Oscar. So um, it was really exciting. I mean, and it was, and I still kind of credit 
my work in film is kind of influencing a lot of the work I do now as a writer. Uh, so the book is largely inspired by your own rape in 2008 and uh, tells the story from alternating perspectives of both the victim and perpetrator. And I'm sure you get asked this question a lot. But uh, what compelled you to share your experience through fiction rather than a memoir? Yeah, I mean, just to put that event itself in context, I mean, I, um, the, yeah, you're right. I mean, the rape took place in 2008. At the time, I was really busy working on that film career. And I thought that's the job I wanted to have for the rest of my life, producing films. Um, and then, you know, I was walking through a park in the middle of the day. I was followed by um, a teenage boy who then, you know, stalked me and and violently raped and beat me. Um, And that pretty much ended my life as I knew it at the time, as it does for most survivors of rape. Um, So my whole film producing career ended as a result of that trauma, really. Um, And there was a great sense of loss about that. Um, And yet at the same time, because I'd always worked in storytelling, I knew I wanted to tell the story about my rape, but in a different way from what I'd seen before in books or in film, really. So there had been a number of really good memoirs, and there still are some really good memoirs written by rape survivors, which were incredibly helpful for me um, in the aftermath of my own of my own assaults. Um, but I wanted to do something different. Um, so I wanted to look at the viewpoint of the, vic- of the, the victim and the perpetrator and kind of interweave those two stories, uh, because I knew so little about my perpetrator. He was a stranger. He still is a stranger. He always will be. And there were a lot of kind of, for me, un- unanswered questions about who that boy was and what had happened to- in his life that had led him to being so violent. Um, so I sort of wanted to interweave his story with mine. Um, but in real life, you know, I, I can't actually find out that much information about my real life rapist because, you know, there's, uh, you know, the police kept on saying, well, he's got a right to privacy as well. We can't give you that much information. And I eventually realized, well, I mean, I could just write this fiction and imagine what his life would have been like. And that gives me much more creative freedom. Um, so I think by weaving those two stories together, you kind of get a sense of two very, very different lives which uh, interact, uh, which intersect in like a single act of violence. And you get a sense of how those two lives are affected ever afterwards by that violence. And at the same time, I thought it was important to look at how these two very different characters grow up under different circumstances and then happen to those lives happen to collide on that one afternoon. Uh, Yeah, um, I noticed that a large part of the first part of your novel, um, you go in depth into how... uh, both Vivian and Johnny grew up, and I couldn't help but notice that they are both from marginalized communities. Vivian is Taiwanese-American, and Johnny is from the Irish Travelers Group, which I've actually never heard before, before I uh, I read your book. Um, how was that? Like, can you talk about your experience, uh, like, learning more about the Irish Travelers Group? Did you know about them before um, you started writing your book? Yeah, actually, I mean, I the first time I actually really heard about Irish travelers was, you know, after my own assault. And I had lived in Ireland for, you know, a year, year or so, you know, as a graduate student. Um, but, you know, Irish travelers had never really come up in my conversations. And uh, I mean, just so, you know, listeners know more about have a, have a kind of potted history of travelers. That, you know, it's a kind of a nomadic community that most people would say kind of live on the fringes of Irish society. And um, traditionally, this this community, you know, would move around and um, they were very good at working with horses and they're very good blacksmiths. Um, so that those are the kinds of like services they'd perform for communities. They'd make, you know, pots and pans and, you know, horseshoes um, back in the day. And now, obviously, you know, there's no need for those kinds of skills anymore. So there's sort of a sense of a community which no longer has its place in society, even though it was always sort of a place that was moving around. Um, and so 
there's a lot of prejudice against uh, travelers as, as a group that often just kind of indulges in crime, petty crime, or, you know, obviously worse crime as well. Um, and, and because of the moving around, there tends not to be a lot of formal education, like in, you know, in mainstream schools for travelers. So in general, there's a lot of prejudice against that community. Um, to the point that, you know, when I found out that my rapist was a traveler, I would say that to some people, to Irish people and, and English people, and they'd be like, oh, well, that, that makes sense then, right? Because they're like, well, of course it's, you know, a traveler would have done something like that. So I was just aware of the fact that there was, there was this particular community um, which had so much um, stereotyping against it and so much discrimination in a very different way from my own upbringing as a Taiwanese-American who obviously on some level suffered discrimination, but a completely different kind, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I noticed like in the book, uh, Vivian, she's always mentioned as a Chinese tourist, even though she is technically Chinese American. And um, that definitely colors uh, what society thinks of her and also how the press depicts her. Um, Was that something that you also went through when um, at, at the time of your assault? Oh, yeah, hugely. I mean, most of Vivian's experiences in the book are lifted almost directly from my own experience. And I've changed a few details and I've kind of changed the chronology of some things. But yeah, I felt it was important to really capture my own my own real life experience and then kind of render that um, in, into, you know, the, into the book itself. Um, because it is all like a series of, I mean, you might, some people might say microaggressions, a whole series of kind of misunderstandings about who you are simply because of how you look, which I, I think, you know, speaks more largely to the experiences of anybody who's an ethnic minority, really. Um, so, yeah, I constantly, when I was living in Ireland, you know, it's still, still even to this day, in some ways, I, I get comments on why my English is so good. Um, and I'm often like, well, you know, that's because it's my first language, right? Um, and that, and there's just kind of a disconnect because, you know, there isn't this great awareness of, of people that look Chinese that are born American and speak perfectly good English. Um, so, and then in the aftermath of my rape, you know, that became kind of a significant thing to the, you know, the point, uh, where the, the news headlines, yeah, it did say I was a Chinese tourist and there was kind of a, uh, this, this kind of, um, blurring of my identity really, um, I wasn't really seen as being American um, because I looked Chinese. Um, and when I went to the hospital after the assaults, um, I was with a, a friend who was a white lady and the receptionist at the hospital said, turned to her and said, oh, are you needed to translate, right? So there's all these kinds of like small little details, which um, did happen to me in real life. Um, going back to your question about research and Johnny. So with, with Vivian, because I've lived that, I didn't have to do a great deal of research, but with Johnny, um, researching the Irish traveling community, it, it was, was different. I mean, it was kind of sort of like ethnographic research in some ways. Um, it's a very closed community. So it was, it wasn't like I could kind of start hanging out with travelers, you know? <laughs> um, so I, um, did as much research as I could, you know, through, through reading and, um, books, and um, reading books and newspapers, articles, and um, you know, watching you know TV documentaries and, and films, um, and then eventually I went to different travelers' rights organizations, social workers that work with travelers to kind of improve their access to education and, and healthcare. Um, and uh, you know, I spoke with a number of social workers um, in London, Belfast, and Dublin. Um, and then eventually, there are some like horse fairs that happen um, regularly throughout the year, and that's traditionally a gathering of where a lot of traveler and gypsy families will come um, to trade horses, but also you know just to, to hang out and see each other. Um, so now, sort of tourists sometimes go to those places just to look at the travelers. I think um, so. I kind of did that a bit um, just to get a sense of actually 
you know, an ethnographic sense of that community a bit, um, even though, you know, it's, it's a very private, closed community. Um, but for me, it was important to try to capture Johnny and his um, identity as a traveler and how he's always fighting against a certain amount of um, uh, discrimination against him and how that might in some ways contribute to um, a sense of, you know, nobody cares about me because of who I am, because of my identity, so why should I care about other people? Um, you know, which is an interesting thing to consider in terms of how different minorities are perceived and how different opportunities are denied them. Yeah, definitely. Because um, like Vivian, she is, you know, her education background, her economic status, like it's almost on the complete uh opposite end of the spectrum from Johnny, who is um, illiterate and who is part of a marginalized group that is often um, discriminated as uh, troublemakers in society. So I thought that was uh, really interesting. Um, was, it more in- was it more difficult for you to write about uh, Vivian's experience, which mirrors your own, or was it more difficult to write Johnny's? Um, I guess they were sort of difficult in different ways. Um, for Vivian, um, it was writing her sections were really, I mean, emotionally quite tough for me because in some ways I was reliving like the worst period of my life. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, obviously I didn't start writing a novel until five and a half years after the assault itself because I realized I had to recover and rebuild my life somewhat, um, before I could have, um, the perspective to look at my rape in that way. But, um, you know, when I was running of the inspections, I was especially like immediately after the assault, which is very traumatized and very depressed. Um, I was just like, wow, that was that, that period of my life sucked for me. Right. And so that I would write some sections. I'd like cry because, you know, I was, it was a reminder of how miserable I was at the time. Um, and writing Johnny sections weren't emotionally difficult in that way, even though the thought of, you know, trying to develop an empathetic character from a, a violent teenage rapist is, you know, sort of unpleasant in some ways. Um, I felt like it was necessary um, to try to imagine him as a human being who'd been born innocent. So for me, it was more challenging to write Johnny just in terms of, um, I guess, making that empathetic leap. But then also linguistically, I, you know, I write their two sections in very different ways. So with Johnny's sections, you know, I use um, you know, kind of Irish traveler slang and Irish teenage slang as well. So trying to use a completely different form of language was was pretty challenging, but also quite interesting at the same time. So, so Vivian, it was like more emotionally tough. And then for Johnny, it was more challenging and yet also interesting, you know, as a, as a writer, I suppose, to try to bring that voice to life. Um, so oftentimes when we see uh, rape victims portrayed in film and media, um, the recovery time span is very short. Um, usually the narrative is edited, so it's like crime, trial, verdict, and then it just ends on <clears throat> ends on the verdict and the victim attempting to recover. Um, but in your book, there, uh, Vivian, it's it's like five years after the attack, if I'm correct. Um, there is a much longer uh, time span for her to recover and slowly rebuild her life. Uh, how important was that for you to show that in the novel? Oh, yeah, super important. Right? Because exactly <laughs> I can imagine. Said, yeah, exactly. As you said, like you watch a TV show, you know, and everything wraps up after the trial and you think like, oh, I'm OK now that justice has been achieved. She's fine. She can move on with her life, which is, you know, partly true in some ways. But I have to you know, point out here that very few rape victims actually get a legal sense of justice because most rapists aren't ever convicted. Um, but, um, 
you know, but in real life, it's not, it's not that easy, right? I mean, it took me years to recover. And once the trial was over, okay, well, the trial in real life, you could be guilty at the last minute. So I, you know, I luckily enough, myself didn't have to live through the trial, um, which is why I wrote one in, in, the, in the book, because I felt like I needed to kind of bring that to life and imagine what it would have been like for me. Um, but in real life, it took me years to recover. And I just remember thinking, wait a second, like, it, it, like you know, he, he got justice or I got justice. He's in jail. Like, I should be able to recover now. And it was just a realization, like, this is a really long road and a really unpredictable road. So um, I felt like I had to capture that in fiction and, and make it a little bit more realistic. Um, and yeah, at the same time, I ran into, like, a whole bunch of arguments with my editor about that, right? So my original version of the book, like, runs eight years after the trial. So there's a whole other arc that happens to both Johnny and, and, and Vivian, um, and my and my, my editor, I don't think I don't think she wanted the book to be that long, so she was like, "Nah, let's just cut it a little bit shorter, right?" Um, to the point where I lost about like seventy percent of what I'd written, right, for oh, that wow. section. That's, that's quite yeah. a big chunk of your book. Yeah, yeah it was really painful. So. Um, so in the end, it was this constant process of me being like, no, we have to show this, we have to show this. Um, and she was thinking, well, you know, the narrative, like, kind of drive is lost after the trial because, you know, the trial is, is kind of the dramatic high point of the story. And that's partially because of what we expect from from watching TV shows and movies. Um, so she just wanted things to wrap up. But I was like, no, I need to show how difficult the recovery process is, both for Vivian and also for Johnny. Um, so what ended up happening was that um, there were two scenes I really, really wanted to keep. Keep, um, which my British editor didn't keep, did she? Did she didn't really care about those scenes? And so I went to my American editor and I said, like, listen, can I include these two scenes? And he's like, yeah, that's fine. So the American edition of the book has two additional scenes just before the very end, um, and the British edition is missing those scenes, um, which is a interesting little piece of trivia. I mean, I'd say probably both versions of the book are fine. The American version is like a little bit more complete for me. That's that's really interesting that uh, both versions are different. Um, I know that you've shared your story in uh, London, Ireland, uh, the States, also in Korea recently. Uh, have you noticed any difference in the reception of your story in these countries? I mean, I think a lot of it depends on, on your publisher and how they decide to push the book out and market it and promote it. You know, so... Um, I have independent publishers, like small independent publishers in both the US and the UK, so they just don't have really the resources um, to kind of push my book out in a big way. Um, so I've kind of had to do a lot of my own events and publicity. Um, you know, I'm, a book tour that I've had in the States is was kind of pretty much like self-funded. Um, so it, you know, that was, that was a lot of work. Um, and something that like nobody ever tells you as an author that you have to do, um, in addition to writing the book. But, um, but yeah, so that, but in some ways in all those places, like the book has, you know, reached kind of, I don't know what you'd say the target audience for me was obviously I wanted to reach other survivors and kind of, um, you know, say like here's here's an account of a rape which is more realistic and kind of reflects all the different things that we have to go through in some ways as survivors and as victims um in korea my publishers um they they went all out and they flew me over for like a five-day kind of promotional um i guess tour i didn't really leave seoul but you know it was five days of just publicity and promotion and, and events um and it was great it was, it was quite challenging for me because i had about like three to four media interviews a day with a translator while i was jet lagged um but uh it was pretty amazing to be able to connect with um korean activists and feminists and survivors um especially because i think the me too movements really reached that country and and affected it in a in a, in a different way um there's been a very very public reckoning 
of of these kinds of crimes in a country that's never had the public reckoning for it before, really. Um, so yeah, there have been small differences, um, but I think you know the thing about this issue about sexual violence is that it affects every single country. So um, there are going to be wherever I am, there are going to be people that that can relate to what I'm talking about. Um, I was in South Africa for a book festival in September. And again, you know, South Africa, some people say like, it's the rape capital of the world. I mean, there, there was a, a huge amount of sexual violence down there. And what's interesting is that some uh, survivors and activists I spoke to there said like, it's, it happens so often, it's almost, it almost seems a little bit normalized and, and people don't want to talk about it as much. And yet at the same time, there is a huge amount of activism against about it there. It just happens in different pockets. So, so it has been interesting to talk about it in different countries. Um, but, it, you know, I think everyone's realizing, everyone knows that it's an important issue. It's just how do we... How do we get past certain, I guess, cultural hang-ups in terms of talking about it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, like one of one of the things I got a sense from uh, from your novel is how toxic masculinity, how it's uh, like how it develops and how it crosses borders and cultures. Uh, we see it. We see it in how like Vivian learns how to navigate the world as a single woman traveling traveling alone, and we see how Johnny develops into um, a sexual predator. Um, and definitely with the Me Too movement, uh, there's been like more conversation about uh, toxic masculinity. And I know that you are a PhD research- researcher who studies the impact of uh, how social media, um, how uh, rape survivors uh, share their experience on social media. Um, so can you just ex- expand on what you found in your research? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so... I- you know, I mean, the Me Too movement's a perfect example, right? I mean, so, you know, what is it now? It's like June 2018, a year ago, you know, we didn't have, we did have the Me Too movement, it just hadn't kind of blown up in such a big way because of the Weinstein scandal. Um, so uh, just even in the past, you know, eight months, there's been a, a huge reckoning and, a, you know, there's been a huge kind of awareness building of, of how prevalent this this, um, this kind of crime is and these kinds of experiences are. I mean, I think um, the thing with social media is that it enables the actual victims or people with the lived experience to, to share their story, even if it's like in small ways, like you know, a Twitter, a tweet, right? It's not very long. But um, previously, you know, if you think about like 20 years ago, I mean, we didn't have social media. So there was just kind of mainstream media. There's like newspapers and TV, you know, and, and like TV on the news and the radio. Um, so if something had happened to you, the public wasn't going to know about it unless a journalist had decided to write about it, right, or, or to kind of report it. And so there's a certain selection process that happens there, right? Like, what what is the, the rape that's going to make the news? Probably the one that is the most salacious and weird. So that, that was one reason why my rape as a Chinese tourist, brutally beaten in a park by a 15-year-old boy, was all over the news in Northern Ireland. So, um, and yeah, at the same time, so if it's, for example, like stranger rape is kind of the, the most salacious in some ways and because it really kind of, I don't know, it, you know, plays on our fears about, you know, going into a dark forest, um, which unfortunately was my experience. Um, and at the same time, so that's the one that maybe gets most news play or most airtime. But in reality, like nine out of ten victims know their perpetrator. So there's this very big gap between the lived experience of sexual violence and what you see in the news. Um, and if you were a victim and you wanted your share, story to be shared, there's a very good chance, you know, if it didn't fit into that kind of traditional model of what we expect rape to be, or if there, it wasn't seen as being, you know, sensational in a certain way, then it wouldn't get, your story wouldn't get told. And also wouldn't get told in your own terms, right? It would be a journalist deciding to emphasize whatever details they want. So there's this sense of, um, 
you know, again, there's a power structure there, right? Because even if you want to tell your story, you don't really necessarily have access to that kind of platform that is the media. Um, whereas with social media, yeah, you do have access to that kind of platform. And if you want to post something on Facebook and it's all your own writing and words. Um, so there's the ability to tell your story, which um, is kind of taking place with these new forms of technology. And we saw that again with um, you know, the Stanford sexual assault that took place not, you know, in I think 2015, was it? Um, 2016, and that victim's impact statement, which was quite long, it was 10,000 words, was published on BuzzFeed and like 30 million people around the world read it. And that would have never happened with a traditional newspaper, you know, in the 90s, right? No one's going to publish a 10,000 word essay by somebody who's not famous, right? Somebody who's anonymous. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think we are seeing a huge outpouring and we're seeing the story being told in the words of the survivors themselves. And that's hugely important because that's a more realistic, um, that's a more realistic rendering of the experience. And hopefully that will lead to greater public understanding of something which is unfortunately a very widespread experience that traditionally hasn't been spoken about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, before we wrap up, I do want to ask you one last question. Um, so I'm I'm imagining that this book was very very difficult to write because it is a it is a very traumatic experience that you lived through and um, and you are writing it so openly and you're talking about it so openly. Um, has writing this novel been uh, I don't know like therapeutic? Um, <laughs> To your or like crucial to your healing? Have you felt any closure from uh, writing this novel? Um, yes and no. I mean, writing a novel like you think it's going to be like a, a, an experience that has a definite endpoint, but that's not the case, right? Because <laughs> you write the first draft and then you have to do another draft and then and then it gets sold and you're not sure. Well, and then that you know your agent puts it out like first on submission and you're not even sure if it's going to get sold. When it gets sold, you have to jump into edits right away. You know, so there's kind of like always another thing they have to do in the process of, of getting your book out there, right? And even now, it's, you know, my book has been published for over a year now and I'm still, you know, doing events and speaking to people about it and that's that's all part of the whole project, right? Um, so, I mean, I can't say there's closure to it because it's, it's actually ongoing conversations which continue to expand in some ways. Um, but I guess it allowed me, the writing of the book itself allowed me to put to rest some questions I had about my real-life perpetrator. And like, I, you know, I'm never going to know the real-life individual, I'm never going to know the real-life answer to those questions, but at least I was able to imagine answers to them. And those questions are, you know, what had happened in his life that led him to being so violent at such a young age that he raped me, right? Um, and, you know, in all the years since, have he, has he ever thought about the impact of his actions, his actions on my life? Um, and that's often, I think, I know a lot of victims wonder that about their perpetrators. Um, so for me, at least, being able to imagine that was, was an artistic attempt to answer that question. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I always wanted to be a writer, so there's something about taking, you know, what was a pretty awful and traumatic experience for me and a life-changing experience, um, which ended certain, you know, aspects of my life, like my film producing career, there's something about taking that and being able to transform that into, um, I mean, a work of writing, which other people can read and hopefully can try to, I guess, change their understanding of, of this kind of experience. Um, so I think there's something transformative in that as well, which maybe is, you can call that, that's therapeutic in some way, or, you know, that's, uh, that's, that allows me a sense of closure. And at least I can say like, okay, this awful thing happened to me, but at least I've been able to, to do something productive out of it. And also help people, uh, with their own recovery. Um, 
Yeah, um, I guess that's it. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time again to talk to us. Um, uh, before before we go, like one last thing, uh, where can our listeners find you? Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I'm based in London, but I do travel pretty frequently. So I have a website, Winnie M. Lee, L-I, so I'm Winnie Lake the Pooh, M for Mother L-I dot com. And so you can kind of, I probably should update it more than I actually do. Um, but you can find out news there and upcoming events there. Um, and then I'm on Twitter at Winnie M. Lee. And Instagram is also Winnie M. Lee. Um, and then obviously the book itself you can find probably for most major booksellers. It's on Amazon and, you know, it's it's in most um, most uh, kind of major booksellers we carry it as well. Okay. Thank you so much again. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And that was our interview with Winnie Emily. Thank you, Rira, for taking lead on that. And that'll do it for this episode of Books and Bulba. This podcast was recorded at the Potluck Podcast Studio located in Visual Communications in Little Tokyo. Visual Communications develops and supports the voices of Asian American and Pacific Islander media artists who empower communities and challenge perspectives. Some of their annual programs include the Academy Award Qualifying Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival, the Arm with a Camera Fellowship, and C3, the Conference for Creative Content. Learn more about visual communications at pconline.org. Um, and thank you so much for letting us use your space to record this podcast. Um, this podcast is also a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices from our communities. Um, learn more about our great menu of shows by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. And speaking of websites, um, check out booksandboba.com. Uh, our new website is finally live so you can check out our old episodes contact us and enjoy the brilliantly designed <laughs> aesthetics from myself and Rira it's live now so um, yeah all that is available at booksandboba.com uh, thanks again for listening thank you Rira for conducting the interview and we'll see you next time yeah keep reading mm-hmm.